Can you make out what is on the screens? I see some smiles of recognition. Exactly 45 years ago today, Newport Covenant Church gathered together for Sunday morning worship. This sanctuary was dedicated in 1977. When I sent my scans of the June 26th, 1977 bulletin to Byron, he said he remembered it like it was yesterday. He sang in Einer's choir that year and that day, and they were about to take the summer off. And uh, I'm sure that some of you can remember that time just as vividly. You can see the faces. You can hear the voices. Others of you had not been born yet. In fact, some of your parents had not been born yet. So as we engage this first section of Acts, it is worth noting that Luke was writing about things that had happened half of a century earlier. According to the sequence of events in the first four chapters of Acts, the scene recounted in today's scripture text follows closely after the ascension of Jesus and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit during Pentecost. General consensus is that Luke wrote in the 80s about what had taken place in the 30s. It is also worth noting that the Jerusalem temple was destroyed by a Roman army in 70 during the suppression of a Jewish revolt. So Luke is describing events that took place in and around a magnificent temple that was no more. For his audience, it was a heap of rubble. Okay, let's read this text. Please follow along with me, whether in your own Bible or on your uh, smartphone, or it will also be on the screens. This is Acts chapter 4, verse 32 through chapter 5, verse 11. <clears throat> All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. 
when Peter said, then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? She, yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, How could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, finding her dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church, and all who heard about it, and all who heard about these events. Let's be forthright about it. This is a troublesome passage. The story before us is weird. It's unsettling. And frankly, out of alignment with my understanding of the gospel. It is unlike Jesus, who routinely fellowshiped with less than holy folks. It is unlike the church described in the remainder of the book of Acts, where people are occasionally rebuked and disciplined, but without suffering sudden death. To be clear, however, and contrary to how I have sometimes heard it interpreted, the text does not report that God killed Sapphira and Ananias. There appears to be a direct connection, connection between the presence of the Spirit of God and their abrupt ends, but the precise nature of that connection is not articulated. Furthermore, while we are informed that great fear seized the people, Luke does not report that they were terrified of God. Nonetheless, the central perplexities of this text remain opaque to me. It is a hard passage. But wrestling with its interpretation has benefited me. The Spirit has spoken to me in my struggle to understand. And I hope each of you is able to say the same after this morning's exploration. Let's look at the main characters. Peter, Barnabas, 
and Ananias and Sapphira. Much can be said about Peter, of course, but I'll focus on three of his pertinent characteristics. One, he was a fisherman, a working-class person without privilege or prestige. Two, he knew about sails, waves, nets, and teamwork, but was uneducated in terms of legalities and academic complexities. Three, Jesus renamed him Rock and promised to build a church on his leadership and especially on his belief. You can find that story in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 18, if you're interested in looking it up. Peter's belief was transparently flawed, but it was not false. His wholeheartedness was not pristine, but it was real. Barnabas, whose given name was Joseph, was a Levite, meaning he was a hereditary member of Judaism's priestly class. Unlike Peter, he probably had studied troves of Jewish teachings with all due rigor and perhaps even with passion. He hailed from a Hellenized Jewish family living on the island of Cyprus in the Eastern Mediterranean Sea, which means he had most likely internalized the milieu of his day. Greco-Roman societal assumptions would have situated Barnabas above Peter. You following that? And it would have been decisive. Like there would have been no question that Barnabas was in a higher class, a higher echelon than Peter. And traditional Jewish culture would certainly have done the same. Barnabas's generous monetary gift is noteworthy on its own merits, of course. But it is truly remarkable, given his Greco-Roman and Jewish contexts, that a Levite would bring so substantial an offering to the feet of a common laborer such as Peter. By publicly enacting his faith in Christ and love for the people, Barnabas was coloring outside the lines of tradition and everyday assumptions. Luke expects us to notice the profound newness depicted in this scene. The Spirit is always doing newness. Before we proceed to a closer look at the characters of Sapphira and Ananias, I want us to consider the context of Luke's original audience. As I mentioned earlier, Luke is writing Acts a half century after the fact. Things had changed. Initially, the followers of Jesus were a subgroup of Judaism. The Jewish religious establishment saw themselves as the supervisors of the new sect, 
responsible to keep them under control. They were not about to let a ragged and rambunctious offshoot jeopardize their comfortable arrangement with Rome. So they came down hard on the early believers. Later in the first century, however, it was not so much the Jews, but Rome that brought persecution, and for different reasons. One of the things Luke almost certainly hopes to convey through this story is that these followers of Jesus were not atheists, and they were not antisocial. That might sound strange to you, since even the harshest criticisms of Christians in our context don't tend to make those peculiar charges. But one of the pillars of peace and stability in the Roman Empire was pluralism, which meant polytheism. In other words, you were welcome to worship your own God as long as you worshiped everyone else's gods too, including the self-deified emperor. That didn't work for the Christians. Neither were they fond of social events such as gladiatorial games and feasts at pagan temples. Their non-participation made them vulnerable to suspicions that escalated to accusations and ultimately led to sporadic persecutions. Some among Luke's original audience would be martyred for their faith. And most of them understood martyrdom to be well within the realm of possibility for them. Following Jesus could be a life and death matter. So these people needed to know that their Christian faith was real enough to die for. I wonder if Luke included this account in his book partly for its existential impact as a reverse image, if you will, of what he and, his, he and his friends were facing. You'll notice that Luke paints a family portrait of generosity, liberty, responsibility, and gratitude in the church community. Again, he is determined to refute the false charge of antisociality that had gained traction during the time when he was writing. I find it interesting that no particular economic ideology is espoused in this text. In fact, details are included that disarm agendas we might be tempted to read into it. Resources were commonly held, but also privately owned and managed. Individuals could count on collective benevolence and, at the same time, they were fully free as individuals to shape their acts of generosity. There was no apparent incongruency between shared wealth and personal wealth in the early church. The book of Acts shows the Spirit's living presence forming the church in real time. And we are relatives of that family as the Spirit's living presence forms us now. The presence of God is creational. 
Notice verse 11 in chapter 5. When it talks about the great fear that seized them, it says great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. This, so that's the last sentence of this segment. So in this last statement of this passage, it is Luke's first use of the term church in reference to the new community of faith. It's the first time in either in the Gospel of Luke or Acts that he has called this group of people the church. I believe that's significant. We are witnessing a birth. The church is taking its first breaths. The Spirit is always doing newness. Relationality is focal in the narrative, much more so than fiscal philosophy. Luke presents the expanding family of faith as exhibiting the highest Greco-Roman standards of friendship. Ananias and Sapphira wish to enjoy relational equity in the new community, but without sincerely trusting its people. I'm going to say that again. Ananias wish to enjoy relational equity in the new community, but without sincerely trusting its people. They opt to hedge their bets. It's tragically ironic because the offerings described in our passage were directly connected to the community's tangible care for one another. It says, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them, in them all, that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Sapphira and Ananias did not trust their community to care for them, and they did not trust God to provide for them. Lamentably, they deliberately hid this, unwilling to acknowledge their weakness. They did not expect the Spirit to have any real impact on their lives, neither in terms of accountability nor in regard to provision. Secretly, they bet on themselves. Peter asks Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? Later, he asks Sapphira, how could you conspire to test the Spirit of the Lord? The NIV translates the Greek term peradzo as test. Other translations choose tempt. The word literally means to pierce or probe 
and it has an almost scientific connotation. Poking at something to see what it is, to see what's inside, conducting an experiment. And Luke has employed this term before, early in his gospel. This is how he describes what the devil was doing to Jesus during the wilderness temptation. For 40 days he was tempted by the devil. This provides a chilling link between Peter's different ways of questioning Sapphira and Ananias. They were both following Satan in probing the Spirit of God, putting God to the test with an underlying cynicism about divine power and goodness. Ananias and Sapphira's hedged offering cloaked a self-preserving agenda indicative of their implicit atheism and antisociality. Maybe in this vulnerable moment when the church drew its first breaths, the spirit's immune response was a maternal guarding of the unique belief DNA at its heart. The spirit is always doing newness. Does this biblical text have anything to do with us today? I'm confident that it does. And with all due respect, to the deceased in this narrative. I will now shift from exegesis to exhortation. Newness is happening among us, Newport. By God's grace, may we be clear about what we bring to the Spirit's newness. May we live as a wholehearted, and open-handed community. May we become boldly transparent about our imperfect, incomplete formations as believers in God and as people that care for one another. Acknowledging our weaknesses, may we learn together to loosen our grip on hidden agendas of self-protection. We want to be awake and alive to all that the Creator is calling to life in us, around us, and through us. Come, Holy Spirit, and move us to newness for God's glory and for neighbor's good.